Okay, so I still feel weird introducing the podcast. That's okay. But this is the Writability Podcast. That's a good name, right? I feel like I'm still insecure about it. I like it. And uh, anyway, I'm Katie Bavarian, and I teach English at COS. And I'm here today with Emily Campbell, a librarian. Emily, what else do you do? Who are you? Sure. So my name's Emily Campbell. I'm a librarian, mostly on the Visalia campus. And I do a lot of different things. I teach library classes. I come into, you know, different classes and teach students about research I purchase materials for the library, books, but also like electronic collections. And I help students with research questions. Uh, I, I work a little bit in our uh, virtual reference rooms and help students with their research. Nice. You do so many things. <laughs> yes, I am. Emily, who does everything. Today, we're going to talk about something that if we were having face-to-face classes, Emily might come to my class and talk about, which is mm-hmm. how to find credible sources, like what sources we should trust. Yeah. And I feel like it's a nice thing to have a conversation about because I think it's something that is really important both for school and for our real life, right? And so, Emily, I wrote down a few questions for you. Are you ready for a question? Sure. Yeah, let's do it. Do you have any stories of being duped by fake articles or bad information? You know, there's there there's one example that I that I'll usually talk to to students about and the reason it the reason it sticks out in my memory is it was such a good dupe. I mean, it looked so totally realistic. And there was a story circulating, and I want to say it was back in 2016, and it was on a website called abc.com. I think it was abc.com.co. So it looked like it was a site that was affiliated with uh, ABC, Mm -hmm. which is like a network that people kind of usually trust, but it was like a different site. And it was circulating a story that Barack Obama, who was president at the time, had signed legislation that said that the Pledge of Allegiance was... Uh, banned in public schools. And I remember seeing this story kind of circulating on Facebook from people that like, I thought should have known Mm -hmm. better, basically, (laughs) that this was story. And, um, but when I looked at the story as well, it took me a second to kind of figure out that this was not a legitimate news site. This was a site that had been created to mimic, Mm. to copy a news site. And, but, but they did a really good job of it. And it's something that, you know, like, I think a lot of people believe that that had actually happened. Mine is kind of similar that I always, I have a story I always tell students. It was when the protests in Baltimore were happening, which I just had to look up like 2015 ish. And I'd been seeing all a lot of stuff on Facebook about, you know, oh, there's protests. Oh, like there's some looting happening. Oh, there's this and that. Um, And there was a a picture I remember seeing that was like, it was like Baltimore in flames or something. And it was a picture of a fire. There was a McDonald's in the background. It was from a Fox News Mm -hmm. affiliate. So I think it like called it a riot. And I was like, okay, but but oh, there's a fire. Okay. And then Mm -hmm. I just like kept going on my day, right? Whatever. And then a couple days later, I, I saw a news story and apparently that Fox News affiliate it, they had just Googled riots and fire and it was a picture of a fire in Venezuela and not Baltimore. And I wow. was a really interesting wow. moment because I was just like, oh, if I hadn't seen this article, it, it kind of fit with my narrative of what I thought was yeah. ha- might be happening because, you know, sometimes there's fires. Right. And yeah, I right. was like, oh, shoot. Like, huh. Yeah, yeah. And and it kind of shows you like how easily a picture can be used like from what that that was created in one context and being used in another situation and just be sort of spun as like right. related to that. And there was like a McDonald's sign in the back yeah, and I was like I don't know what I don't know what Venezuela yeah. in the dark looks like. I don't know what yeah. Baltimore in the dark looks like. 
probably also not right. in the light. So right. like, how was I supposed yeah. to know? Yeah, for and sure. I, think, I mean, it's important though, yeah. like learning to read with a critical eye is important, but also with how much information we see every day, I, it, I know there's other things that are not true that I just like, oh yeah, that's how it is. Right. For sure. For sure. Yeah. And it's, we, we do, there's just, there's so, like you said, there's so much information coming at us all the time. Just the explosion of information sources that we've seen happen since, you know, the advent of social media. And then if you want to go back further, like just the World Wide web in general, it's like, there's just so many more information sources that we have access to. And it, it can be a little bit overwhelming for sure. Yeah, for sure. And I know there's like, I always, I end up talking to my students about confirmation bias a little bit when I tell that story, because mm -hmm. I don't know, like the best way to define confirmation bias, but pretty much it's just like, you tend to yeah. believe stuff that already fits with what you believe, right? And I'm sure we see this happening, right? right. If you see an article that seems really like outside of what you expect from a person or from an organization or stuff, you question it more than if it's mm -hmm. within the narrative mm -hmm. of stuff you already believe. And I think right. like that's an important thing to be aware of too, is that like sometimes that confirmation yeah. bias affects what we question. For sure. And I, I don't know if this kind of speaks to that, but like one of the things that I'll try to do is read a few news sources that are sort of like different mm -hmm. than my own political views. So like I'll read, I'll try to read the Wall Street Journal when there's not a, a paywall. Which we got to talk about that too. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, just to kind of see how they're, how they're presenting like the same news story that I might read on the Atlantic or like something that's a little bit more what my political beliefs are. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, if our focus is on like thinking about source credibility, right? I guess the first thing we probably need to say is like, what is a source? What do we mean when we use the word source? And Right. So what I tell my students when we talk about information sources is, is an information source can be really be anything, any source where you, mm -hmm. you know, can find information. So it doesn't have to be a print source. It doesn't have to be, you know, a book that you find in the library. It can be a website. It can be a tweet. It could be an interview, you know, with an expert on a topic or an interview with a family member. Like there, it, it could be your own experience. Like, I mean, there's a certain, you know, there, there are things in, in your own, own life that you can sometimes use as sources as well. So I think it's, it's a really broad thing. Yeah. Does that, does that make no, sense? No, yeah, it does. I think like one thing that I would encourage students to do is look at your prompts when it comes to sources, because your teachers are, yeah. your instructors are going to define source in a more narrow way, I think. Like, um, for example, right. Uh, right. though I super value students' personal opinion, not personal opinion, like personal experiences, mm -hmm. well, no, I value both of those. I value their opinion and their right, experiences. Right. Like for sources, <laughs> right, I value their right. experiences. I think that having their own voice and their own stories and essays actually turns out really beautifully a lot of ways. I'd like encourage the eye, yeah. but I don't count it as one of their sources. Like them telling right, a story right, does not right. count as a source. Um, obviously, a lot yeah. of us ask for credible sources. And yeah, how how would you define credibility? Doing lots of definitions today. Okay, so with credibility, when I talk about it with students, is like we kind of go back to like the part of the word cred, which you know we talk about like, oh, what are the other words that 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 word part shows up in? So cred, incredible, credit, like, and it all comes back to the the word root cred, which means believe. Like, is this something I can believe? I did not know that. Yeah, it was just street cred. Like, <laughs> is it related to like creed too? Creed, creed, credence. Yeah, yeah. So just like we talk about that a little bit. And it's like, is this something that I can believe that I can put my trust in? That if judging credibility, I think, is a, it's a more difficult, complicated now because, like you said, there are so many different information sources that we have access to. 
there there's the issue we talked a little about the issue of bias but there's also you know there are web sources that are just objectively false or intentionally false and and sometimes that's kind of stuff that we have to deal with when we're when we're searching the web i have two follow-up questions for that actually okay cool cool my first follow-up um (laughs) question is like, I think like a lot of times students want to think about credibility as like binary, like it's either completely not credible Mm -hmm. or completely credible. One or the other. Is that true? I think that there is a lot of gray area and sometimes it's more helpful to talk about Mm. appropriateness. Like something can be credible, but not necessarily be appropriate in your paper. So like maybe like a personal interview or something, like if you're in a class, right. like maybe a history class or something that doesn't really value that kind of information, they want right. uh, maybe peer-reviewed sources or they want these more academic mm-hmm. sources, which we can talk about what the, those words right. mean in a minute. Right. Um, maybe it wouldn't be the most appropriate, but that doesn't mean that information is false, right? Exactly, exactly. And so, yeah, so I mentioned like, you know, personal experience as being an information source and like a personal experience might be an appropriate information source if you're, you know, having a conversation with somebody about an experience, but it may not be necessarily be an appropriate source. Like, like you said, if you're writing a paper for your history class, it requires an academic source that those are, yeah, those are two different things. Does it mean that your personal experience is incredible? No, but it just means that like in that context, you know, it's not necessarily an appropriate, appropriate. I sometimes talk about this when we talk about, so like if me and you were in an argument, right. And I like, I'm not going to fight with you, but if we were in an argument and I was like, okay, okay. I feel like (laughs) blah, blah, blah. Right. And like, you would probably, I hope because you're a good person, like put value on my like feelings, right. Mm -hmm. My like gut feeling of being Mm -hmm. hurt or whatever you would put value on and you would take that as credible. You wouldn't like ask me for data to prove that I was sad. Right. Like, right, um, right, right, right. Like, (laughs) yeah, because of the things we end up valuing for better or for worse in papers, like you may need some data too, not just how you feel about an issue. Right. And a lot of times it's like, you know, you'll find, depending on what your topic is, you'll find that like there, there are people that have devoted their entire lives to studying just a very small piece of your topic and they're experts on that topic. They've done research on it. And, and so, you know, using what they've written, using their data is, you know, it's going to be a more appropriate source and you know, probably more credible source than just your personal feelings about that particular thing. Right. right. And I, yeah, I kind of describe that as like, you can borrow people's credibility in a way. Like if you quote someone who's a super expert, yeah. like, then people are going to trust your right. voice more too in your papers. My other question while you were talking a minute ago that I wrote down is, and this might be backtracking a little, but you mentioned that there's a ton of like sources now that are just fake, just like to trick us. Like, why do you think that is? Like, what is the goal? Why are people just producing stuff that's just not real? Yeah. So I think a lot of it is, is money. I mean, a lot of it is financial. And I think you could really get into this if you wanted to, if you're interested in kind of like looking at the history of like fake, fake news and how it came out of the election and the reasons that so much like objectively false information was put out there. And there was a news story, I think it was in the New Yorker. And it just, it basically told the story of these teenagers in Macedonia who had found that like, this was a really great way to make money. Like what the, what you could do is you could write these fake news stories and there was some monetization like connected to it. And basically, I mean, they were making thousands and thousands of dollars a month, you know, writing these articles that people were clicking on and sharing. And there was like, there was basically some, some money associated with anytime somebody clicked on that article, anytime somebody shared it, they made a little bit of money because of the advertisements on the page. And that's why there's clickbait titles. Like we use that phrase, clickbait, right? Sure. 
Clickbait. Yeah. And I mean, the way that I, I talk to students about it is it's kind of like junk mail, you know, like when you go, um, I mean, that was more of a thing maybe when, when I was growing up, but, but like you, make, but you know, you get these flyers that say, you know, you qualify for $10,000 click here. And, and I really, I think that a lot of the fake content isn't even necessarily created with malicious intent It's created so that it makes somebody money. Now that doesn't mean that there's not that out there. I think there are like probably factions that have created content that's that's um, uh, factually incorrect because they want to influence a narrative. I, I think that the money factor is really a big important Yeah, one. no, I, I completely agree that like making money off it. And I think you mentioned paywalls also. So when I start thinking about the like the money involved yeah. in information. So mm -hmm. I mean, one question I know that we've asked classes together is like, should information be free? Right. Because like what does end up happening a lot and it is really frustrating. I'm finding right now with coronavirus coverage, right? Like I I want to know what's happening oh, yeah. everywhere. And a lot of it's behind paywalls. Right. A lot of it I've already, you know, exceeded my number right. of visits. Yeah. So why does that happen? And like, should that happen? I mean, I know this is going to jump into our right. opinions. So it's frustrating. Somebody who has the same experience when I click, you know, if I sell you times Delta, I kind of like, you know, like to know what's going on in our area. And yeah, you can only read like two or three articles. Same thing with Fresno B, Wall Street Journal. I think they don't allow you any. So it's just, it's, um, it's frustrating when we're so used to just being able to click on websites and have free access to them. It's, it's frustrating when you want news content and you can't get it. I think a lot of it has to do with the people who produce the news are not making money the way that they used to make money through like newspaper subscriptions mm -hmm. and advertisements and things like that. And so the way that they try to, you know, make money so that they can pay their reporters and, you know, produce the news that they that they're producing is by charging these subscription costs. But it, it's frustrating because there's like a public service to having, like you said, that to having that, you know, that information available to everybody. So like, should it be free? Like, should there be some way that that information is disseminated, you know, from a credible source that that everybody has access to? The library kind of comes in, the way that the library is involved in this is that we buy access to these things called academic databases, which I think I mentioned a little earlier. Basically, we purchase access to a lot of those sources, and then you can access them through the library's website. And that's something that a librarian can help you do. So if a student can't access a Wall Street Journal article or, or like a newspaper article for LA Times or something like that, a lot of times what I'll do is say, okay, let's go into one of our academic databases and see if we have it there. And a lot of times we're able to pull it up. The library does pay thousands and thousands of dollars for that access. So it's definitely, it's, it's a big issue. You know, it's a, it's, you know, you're seeing more and more people creating content for free and putting it out on the web. You know, there's, there's questions of is, is, is that information just as good as what you would get through the Wall Street Journal or Los Angeles Times? Like we're having to kind of navigate mm -hmm. those questions right now. So I don't know if that kind of addresses it or no, it does. I think it's, I mean, it opens up a really interesting conversation. It's something I struggle with a lot too. I know I've talked to you about this, but I used to require my students to have peer reviewed academic sources in their paper, which are sources that you pretty right. much can only find in databases. They're starting to be more like Google Scholar has more open and stuff. And right. I would tell yeah. students, Hey, like, Hey, these are the most credible, right? Because a peer reviewed source is a source written by an expert in a field and reviewed by multiple experts in that field before it gets published. Right. And if you're following coronavirus stuff, you might see this happening right now. I'm reading a lot of studies where it's like, this one hasn't been peer reviewed yet, but. Yeah, I, yeah same here. <laughs> 
yeah. an academic, I know I'm like, okay, I'll take this with a grain of salt, but at least it was expert. We're headed right. in the right direction. Yeah. And, right. but like right. a lot of those are behind those sort of paywalls. And I, students, you may have ran into this before mm-hmm. where you'll click on a source and it'll be like, give us forty nine ninety nine. When you run yeah. into those, by the way, talk to yeah. the library. They will help you find that source. Yeah. Definitely. But it's, it's, some, it's, it's something that I think librarians feel a little bit weird about as well, because we want to make information as free and accessible to people as possible. And there is this sort of barrier. It, and it's something that's being talked about a lot right now, because a lot of times those studies, you're talking about those you know, peer-reviewed sources, that those are funded by the public. Like they're funded through grants and that's money yeah. that's coming from the government and probably ultimately coming from taxpayers. And what happens is they get published in a journal. That journal goes behind a paywall and the public doesn't have access to it or they have to pay $50 to have access to it. Is it right that the public yeah. is funding information that they don't, that they don't get to like benefit from? Like it just, it's, it's a big question. And that happens to people with PhDs who are writing those. A lot of the time to like keep your jobs, you need to be publishing, right? Right. So these uh, university professors, we don't have to do it at COS, but university Mm -hmm. professors are publishing and then they're sending their articles Mm -hmm. for free normally or very, very small amount to a, to a journal. Yes. And then the journal is like, okay, yes, we'll publish this. And then they turn around and charge the school for access to that thing that that person wrote. Yes. So, so, okay, all of that, there's all this, there's politics involved, there's money involved, there's sources you can trust completely, there's ones that are written to manipulate you. So I'm a student writing a research paper. How do I know what Mm -hmm. to trust? Okay, so that's a a really good question. Because now we've confused everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I know, I know. There's a couple of things I can say about that. I always feel uncomfortable telling students that the best place to go is the academic databases because I think there's a lot of good, incredible content that you can find on the open web. It's just a little harder to find it when you're when you're on the open web because um, because you're dealing with all of that other stuff. I know that the students that we worked with in English 301, when we talked about academic databases and how to use those, they found that really, really helpful because it sort of like narrowed down the options that they had to, that they had to vet as sources. <laughs> like it's just sort of like in the ones that were available. I know as a student, even with Google available, I felt more comfortable starting Mm. with academic databases only because it was easier for me. I had less choices to make when I started. I feel like I did the opposite. I would start with Google. Did you really? And I think it's probably generational. Yeah, maybe. I would start with Google. And I think the reason I started with Google is it helped me mm-hmm. figure out what my search terms were because I would get really frustrated right, not finding right. what I needed in the databases. But like if I like started with Google, okay. read the Wikipedia page, I would start to know, yeah. okay, th- these are the, la- this is a language I should be using for the database. Right. Which is, right. I mean, we do right. stuff differently. It's good to know. You got to figure out your process. No. And it's a totally, totally valid way to start as well. As far as like trusting web sources, um, I've had, I've had students and I've had faculty come and ask like, you know, is this a good website? Like if you find content on a website and you're not sure about, rather than like looking at that website and trying to figure out like, is this right? Or is this true? One good thing is just to Google the website. Like if let's say you have sciencedaily.com and I don't know what sciencedaily.com is, I'll Google sciencedaily.com and see if I can find some information about what have other people written about it. Is it, is it legitimate? Yeah. The, I also, with that, often encourage students to see who's making money off it. That's one of the things I like tell yeah. them to do all the sure. time. Um, sure. Because sometimes you can see very clearly that a certain group is like, like it's not a nonprofit and that people are making money. Right. There's an example of this that I've shown in class yeah. a couple of times where students would find these mental health articles and the information seem factually correct. 
but it was from a group where therapists paid like several hundred dollars a year to advertise their okay. therapy. Pretty much okay. I was like, okay, but like, okay, maybe the information's trustworthy, but is it just here because they want us all to think we need therapy, which we probably do, but like maybe right, there's right. another place <laughs> that like doesn't have that bias attached to it that you can find yeah. stuff on. Yeah, I definitely do that. And I know one of the myths I also hear is from students a lot is for some reason they've learned that like if it's .edu or .org or .gov, like it is the mm-hmm. completely credible yeah. information. And right. is that, is that true? Right. No, I mean, it's, it's not. I mean, it's the, you can tell some things about a website just by looking at that last part of the website address, like the .org or the .edu or the .com. So the .org now, I'm pretty sure it's open. Anyone can register um, .org. So yes, I could make a .org. This podcast could be on a .org. Sure. <laughs> yeah. I know. I've, I've had students, I've had students who've said they had a high school teacher that told them that all .org sites were credible. And I was like, well, they're, they're not just because like, it's a, it's an, un, they call it like an mm-hmm. unregulated domain where, like you said, anybody can um, create a, a .org site. .edu and .gov are a little more restrictive because uh, a .edu site has to be created by an educational institution. It can't just be it generally can't just be someone from the general public just, you know, putting something online. And a .gov has to be a, a government entity, you know, that's creating it. So there are some restrictions on those, uh, which, you know, it's not to say that .edus and .govs are always credible, but I think there's probably less bad mm. stuff to, <laughs> to, to, um, to, to sort through when you're looking at .govs and .edus, you know. But that doesn't mean that there aren't good .org sites. There aren't good .com sites. There are, but you really do have to like look at who, like you said, look at who created the site, who is responsible for creating it. If you can't figure out who out who's responsible for creating it, that's kind of a red flag. Like why why don't they want uh-huh. want us to know? You know who's funding it? Is there a monetary interest? You know, is it a really old site? There's a lot of really old content online. When was it updated last? Yeah. For sure. Any or last things you want students to know about credibility? <laughs> oh boy. There's so much that we could talk about. I, what I would say is if you're having difficulty judging the credibility of a site, don't feel like they're the only one that is having that problem. I think that we're having that problem as a world right now. <laughs> like this is, this is a bigger issue. You can always talk with a librarian if you're not sure about a site or if like you're, you just like, you think it's okay, but you're not hundred percent sure. Talk with a librarian. We can, we can look at it. We can give you like our opinion on it. You can talk to your, your instructor as well. And um, they can, they can give you some tips, but a lot, librarians could definitely help you navigate that. I think that was going to be my like last thing too. It's just like, talk to someone. Talk to someone. I know. And I think that too, I, the other thing that I would say for students is like, it will get easier. I think that a lot of students, like they haven't been exposed to enough sources to like automatically know they can trust certain sources, right? Like me and you like have heard enough like names of websites and stuff that we have like in our head sort of lists of, eh, probably not these and yeah, these. And I know that that took a while for me to develop. It took a while of me like interrogating a bunch of sites before I got there Um, and be patient with yourself and ask questions. Are there any web sources to help students kind of navigate whether stuff's credible or not? Yeah, yeah, there's a there's a few really good ones. There's a lot of people are familiar with snopes.com and snopes mm-hmm. isn't bad. There's Politifact. Mm-hmm. And that's a really good one for looking up, you know, stories in the news basically. They sort of rate them on on who, how objectively true or not they are. I use that mediafactcheck.org. Yes, I was going to say that. that yeah, yeah. I think it's media bias uh, media. media bias factcheck.org, I believe. 
If you Google media fact check or yeah, something, I'm sure yeah. you can find it. Yeah. Um, yeah, that one's good as well. That one gives you sort of like a chart of all the like news organizations and kind of like plots them politically. Yeah. I had a student once be like, but what if this website's biased and like looked into it? And apparently they have a ton of experts from both sides politically who interrogate articles to help place those news yeah. organizations. Yeah. So it's it's trustworthy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, you, and you might realize like I, there are so few news sources that I read that I didn't realize where they were on the spectrum. And like, mm. you know, it, it kind of shows you how liberal a, a, a fact a, a news site is. Yeah. And it helps you like what the stuff that you think is unbiased helps you understand where you sit on the political spectrum, right? Exactly. Like, exactly. Because if I think something's super unbiased, but it's actually pretty biased, I'm like, oh, shoot. Like I am reading stuff from my perspective. Right. I need to find some stuff in the middle ground to like help help yeah, me out there. For sure. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Any last any last ideas? No, I was trying to think of other. There's uh, I, I have a list of sites that I give my students in oh, cool. my yeah, library more. class. I was trying to think of the other one. There's a Washington Post fact checker as well, and so like that's uh, you know associated with the Washington Post. Maybe we can put the list in. The yeah. For this. Yeah. Let's do that. Let's do that because there's a couple that I'm just not thinking of right now. Awesome. All right. We're good. Cool. Thanks, guys. Yeah. And, um, one last time, if they some a student needs to contact a librarian, how do they do it? Uh, best way to do it is go to cos.edu, click on library LRC and find the ask a librarian tab. Awesome. Thanks, Emily. All right. Thank you.